My name is Sean Jordan. Welcome to the Adaptive Outdoorsman Podcast. Here we'll be discussing the history and legacy behind disabled hunters, trappers, anglers, and how they adapt and persevere in the woods, on the line, and on the water. Welcome everyone to the podcast. I would like to introduce our guest, Aaron Ritter founder and owner of Limitless Outdoors. He is a retired Navy combat veteran from Washington who lost his leg in a motorcycle accident, who then went on to lead a four-man EOD platoon. Uh, Kelly, me really, really impressed. And I know I said that before the podcast, but it's still the same. That intro sounds a little bit like me, Sean. Yeah. Maybe a little overinflated. Um, <laughs> keep it humble, but that does sound a little bit like Limitless Outdoors. Right. Yeah. Well, go big or go home. That's the way we've all been taught. That's how I like to build a demo shot. Uh, y- you're free, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start with a little bit of family history. Where, where You're from Washington State. I know a couple of guys out there. Uh, but how is it, Norm, uh, Where from where you're from? Well, how is it now or how was it then? That's a, that's we'll, we'll a go. big difference. We'll go I, then. I was, I was born and raised on the Columbia River in southwest Washington, a small town by the name of Washougal, W-A-S-H-O-U-G-A-L. And um, I lived there until I was old enough to ship off into the service, which was about a month after graduation from high school. I did return. I have lived in Walla Walla, Washington. That would be in the southeast corner of Washington State. And then I have been stationed on Whidbey Island up in the Puget Sound. Oh, nice. I just remembered, I know my stepbrother lives up in Washington right now with, with his kids. I, um, I hunted and fished avidly out of Washougal in the southwest area. I hunted avidly out of the southeast corner uh, in the Blue Mountains. Hmm. I did not do any hunting up in the Puget Sound. I did not do a lot of fishing up there either. I was pretty busy with work at that point in time in my life. But Uh, the Washougal area, Mount St. Helens area, Klickitat area, and then again out in Walla Walla in the Blue Mountains. Absolutely stunning. uh, I'd be nervous around Mount St. Helens. I know it's been several years and they have given fair warning, but... That still nervouses me a little bit. My family owned property uh, for three generations on Mount St. Helens. I I, har- I took my first deer, my first blacktail oh. on St. Helens. I, it's a wonderful area. Um, mm-hmm. Sure, the mountain devastated it. It's returning. It's coming back. But we've since moved on, and and my family does other things now. But it was a wonderful part of my childhood. Yeah. And you were a child in, what, the 70s? or I was born in 72. Ah, 85 here. So, yeah, that was about the year after uh, St. Helens blew its top, I believe. No, no, no. I was, I was alive and playing with Hot Wheels cars when the mountain blew. When the mountain blew. Oh, I was talking about, I meant my, me, but I, I was a year afterwards. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't get that one specified. <laughs> but, so, you returned back to state of Washington. When did you move out to where you're at now? Well, the Navy moved, well, the Navy kind of moved me out here to Virginia and Mm -hmm. I arrived on the East coast in 2000 and I believe it was 2009. Mm -hmm. And, um, I lived out here for a few years, lost my leg here. And then I took orders to Spain, um, once I was fully recovered and and able to return to a platoon, I went to Spain and and uh, functioned out of Europe for a couple of years, and then I returned to the East Coast um, for my retirement tour. And because of the hunting that's out here, and I I met my at that time girlfriend and fiance. Uh, I chose to to stay on the East Coast and. To be honest, my mom and dad still live in the house that I was born and raised in. My sister, my nephew lives out there. And I have some really close friends that, that li- still live in my hometown. But I just don't, I don't care for the political climate in Washington, mm-hmm. Washington, Oregon, Cal- California. Um, I don't care for 
um, how they're treating the environment out there. Mm-hmm. And Washington does not manage their fish and game very well. So there's far more opportunity for me out here in the Midwest and the East Coast. So mm-hmm. this is where I'm this is where I'm staying. Now you got you hunt private land out in Virginia. West sorry. Sleep arrived. It's Virginia, right? Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. Ah. Um, I've hunted all three. Nice. Um, I hunt I hunt public and private. Um, and I mean, it's, it's an interesting mixture because I do like hunting public land, especially out in Virginia, Western Virginia in the, the George Washington national forest, the Shenandoahs. Um, that's all just stunning and beautiful habitat for whitetail and Turkey. Uh, there is the Blackwater um, national wildlife refuge and you can purchase a, excuse me, a Blackwater pass. They have a limited number of passes. Um, so you pay for it. It's more or less public land. You just have to pay to hunt there. They they have some incredible hunting. Again, whitetail, turkey, and they have sick elk as well. And then there is ample ample public land, especially in Maryland. Um, Lots Mm -hmm. of UMAs, several thousand acres of accessible hunting. Nice. Yeah, that reminds me of the uh, Washington National Forest, the one where you have to do you purchase the specialized tag to be able to hunt there at the. Pu- uh, yeah, it reminds me of my the reservoirs I have around here. In order to hunt turkeys here, you actually have to uh, sign up for a draw. Okay, so. There's 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 a couple of states that are like that. States yeah. indoor areas. Yeah, but so. You got all, how many, uh, you want to talk more about the accident then, or you want to move on? No, it's uh, that's up to you. I'm an open book on that. Um, so I was, uh, home from my second combat tour in Iraq and I was out riding my motorcycle with a couple of my other buddies and the, I'm going to, I'm not going to go in depth and, and potentially get as emotional as I sometimes do. Uh, so we'll, we'll just make sure that, you know, we have the details for, for this podcast. Um, the throttle locked open in a, going into a turn. And I had a couple of options, um, to one of which would have potentially involved the rider in front of me. Um, mm-hmm. second option would have been hitting the back end of the car that was parked on the turn. Uh, so I, I tried to take my bike off road and my front wheel hit the curb and flipped the bike, which threw me off the bike. And I was helicoptering through the air and a tree, my leg hit a tree and it ripped it clean off. We were approximately a hundred meters apart. Um, my leg and I, uh, I was awake coherent the entire time. Um, it was a very, um, interesting moment of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. I, uh, through the encouragement of, of a close friend at that time, um, powered through that, that brief moment. And it, it 100% turned me into a better man. And if, uh, people ask me often, if I could go back in time, would I change that moment? My answer is no. Um, I do miss ankle articulation for those of you with two legs, ankle articulation is an amazing thing, but having lost my leg and what I've been able to overcome through that, um, and the, the personal growth and mental growth that I've experienced, uh, I never, ever would have found that if I would have, if I would still be a two-legged person. And it's, it's driven me to a point in my life now where I'm helping other people that are missing limbs. And, and with all of that said, Sean, I would not give that up. That's nice. Yeah. It's amazing how much things happen and they just test you in turn internally and mentally and then you actually when you come out better for it afterwards you just it it just brings out a whole new person it can i um i have to say through my experience in interacting with other amputees watching other amputees it seems to me that you either win or you fail Mm -hmm. Um, an amputation will either crush you um, potentially ending your life and, or it propels you into a greater state than you ever were. Yeah. Yeah. And you, or you have that one friend that literally will pick you up and take you out to a hunting blind and make you, uh, enjoy nature for a little bit. 
there's a, it's good to have friends like that. Yeah. A uh, guy I know, uh, I talked to, uh, Carson Nineheis. He does hunt for heel up in Michigan. And yep. He was in a motorcycle accident. Similar. He hit a tree, except it was with his body and broke his back and his neck. And so, you know, he got arm movement and hand movement, but paralyzed from the waist down. He was getting into one of those funks and his buddy literally picked him up, carried him out to a blind and they just enjoyed nature. Love it. And then he got the idea for his nonprofit hunt for heel hunt to heal. So I'd say, yeah, these moments will either make you or break you, or you have that one friend that says, we're going to do it. <clears throat> we all need that. I agree. So after the accident, you got healthy, you got better, you got the prosthesis. <laughs> you, you make it sound like that journey was so easy, but yes. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no. I, I, believe know. me, I know <laughs> the feeling. I've had triple orthodesis fusions on both feet. And each time it was four to six months of just agonizing, uh, slow healing process, which it was probably a little bit longer for you, obviously. And, but yeah, you got healthy and then you started get wanting to get back in the military then. Well, I was still in, I, I never came off of active service. My, uh, oh. the Navy EOD community took really good care of me. Uh, they walked with me through my, my, uh, my recovery, I, I, uh, I, along with losing my leg, I, I broke my femur in two places. Um, one of those fractures, I broke the ball of um, the head of the femur um, wow. completely off the shaft. Um, so I've, I still have a lot of titanium in my body, um, basically a broken hip. And that was far worse than my amputation. I was not load bearing for eight months. If you look at both of my legs, I, I still suffer from a lot of atrophy in my right leg due mm -hmm. to that injury, um, decreased blood flow, immobility, not being able to, to, to put any weight on it. And, and the doctors really thought that, um, that that injury, it has, it has like a 50 or 60% failure rate. So they, they were afraid that they were going to have to, um, um, crush my dreams of returning to active duty and potentially having like a, uh, a, a fake, a fake hip socket for the rest of my life. And mm. I was fortunate enough to, uh, be on the, on the positive side of those, those statistics. And, but yeah, it was a long process. And for, for being, for being a guy, I was 39 years old when I lost my leg, Sean, yeah. And being a guy that's um, in military special operations, highly active, um, pretty competitive um, to, to more or less wake up to be in a wheelchair yeah. um, and and then transition to crutches and then to a cane and and being told that you can't, you know, go weight bearing for eight months. That's rough. Um, but, yeah, um, got through it. And I returned to. Um, at command of Virginia beach. Um, I was in his, on instructor duty for a couple of years and it was during that time frame that I, I continued my rehab and, um, started running again. I started, uh, competing in triathlons and then, um, was ultimately faced with the laundry list of items, the Navy and, um, the Bureau of medicine out of DC and Navy EOD was going to require that I accomplish um, before I was quote unquote, giving a letter, uh, letter fit for full duty. And I will tell you that that, that laundry list of items was far more than anybody else is required to do to get into EOD, uh, Navy EOD, I should say. However, and I was pretty bitter about that at first. Um, I did not understand why I had to do and prove more than anybody else in, in Navy EOD. Yeah. Um, coming out of the other side of that testing process and getting back to full duty and experiencing what I did after that point in time, I'm thankful that, mm -hmm. they, that they had required me to do more. Um, one, it, it pushed me to another level. Um, two, it withdrew a lot of doubt from some other folks uh, that were in the community that were unsure whether or not I should be returning to a Navy EOD platoon. Yeah. And so it did. It, it, it benefited me greatly. 
it got rid of that, oh, he's getting special treatment, and instead it was, yeah, he just surpassed us all. Well, Sean, um, I'll correct you on that. Uh, being, being a guy that was not injured in combat, mm-hmm. um, having lost my leg in a motorcycle accident stateside, yep. I promise you, I was not given any special treatment. If anything, I was, um, what's the word, um, that I'm looking for. I was, um, scrutinized. Great. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, yep. And I obviously getting scrutinized, uh, helped you out in the end. I mean, you led a four man squad with explosives, which that's impressive to me still. And at times, depending on uh, where we were at, that four man team was explosive. now you guys have a doc with you on that uh in that four-man right no so that four-man team was attached to uh 10th special forces group Mm -hmm. 10th group um the troop we were with they had a medic in fact they they had they had several with us yeah nice yeah i've been uh watching youtube and seeing a guy on there talk about why you don't target doc (laughs) (laughs) doc and Sarge, the two two guys you don't want to touch. They, uh, they typically treat you really good, especially if you take care of them. Yeah. And when somebody shoots at doc, they usually don't, uh, come back. (laughs) Yeah. His words, not mine. So, how long were you in the military after you got back from losing my leg? Yeah. Nine years. I served nine years on a metal leg. Okay. Yeah. I, I served <laughs> nine years on a metal leg and I retired on a wooden one. It was pretty cool. Hey, you got to go peg leg one time at least. Well, it's, it's not just once. I mean, it's, I, 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 I don't wear it a lot, but I find great enjoyment out of it when I do. I can understand that. I really do. And especially since you were from the Navy, the irony is not lost. <clears throat> the, uh, the guy that made it for me happened to be my first um, prosthesis. He also happened to be from Washington State. He just He was working in Virginia. When I met him, he returned to practice in Washington. And when I was uh, about six months away from retiring, I reached out to his name is Steve. I reached out to Steve, told him that I was going to that I was retiring, that I was going to be in my choker whites. And I asked him if he could make me a legitimate peg leg. And Steve has a history of making things for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. The guy is so gifted. So he, he harvested hardwood from Washington state. He fabricated a legitimate, um, pretty close to period type peg leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he works with, he's, he has a forge. So he fabricated a very intricate, um, locking mechanism for it. It's very ornate and, and period to that time. And he fashioned a, an actual musket ball in my leg. So it looks like I've been shot in the leg uh, with a musket. Um, it's just really cool. Oh, man. I bet we all know what you go for Halloween every year. You know what? I have yet to dress up as a pirate in that leg. Oh, I've went as Dr. House three times now. <laughs> My wife and I loved that show. I, the yeah. last season, um, not so much, but yeah. for the majority of House, we really enjoyed that series. Yeah, my wife and I, we liked it too. Uh, with the way my feet are, and I hadn't received uh, surgery on my feet because during that time, I think I'd only gotten one of my triple orthodesis fusions on my feet, which for anyone who doesn't know, they eliminate the left, right motion of your feet, which I've had two of those. And both doctors told me I couldn't move my feet. I laughed at them and said I couldn't move them in the first place. But before that I was having to uh, utilize a cane after working for 10 hours a day 
And so I got the bright idea for a Halloween thing. This is before our son was born. Put some gray in my hair, wear uh, a suit jacket with a ACDC t-shirt and go on Halloween thing. That's great. That's great. Good for you. You know, having some levity about your injury is one of the keys and or tools to, you know, moving forward in life. Um, when you're overcoming a, a, a physical abnormality, we'll, mm. we'll, we'll say a physical abnormality and, and through that walk in your life, some of the people that you encounter and the things that they say or the things that they ask, I, um, one of my favorites, I was, I was at Walter Reed. Um, mm-hmm. my mom and dad were still living with me at Walter Reed and it was almost a daily activity for us. Uh, we would go down and do morning, um, physical therapy or whatever, 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 um, appointments I had first thing in the morning. And then we would drive downtown Bethesda. There's a bagel shop downtown Bethesda and they are named, their name is Bethesda bagel. And in 2012, their bagels were ridiculous. Now, if anybody listens to this podcast and they live in the D.C. area or they, they go to D.C. and they're in Bethesda, which is a beautiful suburb or, or city outside of D.C., and you go to Bethesda Bagel, I haven't been there for quite some time. And it's been 10 years, well, 11. Um, but in 2012, their bagels were ridiculous. Um, <laughs> And then a couple of doors up was a coffee shop. So we went and, and we uh, we purchased our, our bagels and we went up to grab a cup of coffee. And I'm in that coffee shop with my parents and I'm still in my leg is still in bandages. Um, so we have they had compression bandages on my stump. I'm in shorts. I'm on crutches. And a gentleman comes up to us and, and he was being sincere. But people just don't think about what they say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for what has happened to you. Can you still run? And I looked at the guy and it just, Sean, it just, it fell right out of my mouth. Man. Oh no. I looked at him and I said, yeah, but only half as fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the look on his face, and I don't think he, at that moment, he didn't really catch, um, the levity in it, I'm, I'm probably going to wear that word out here in the next hour. I think I've said levity two or three times now. I'll try to find another word. Um, right. And he said something like, oh, I'm so sorry, or you know, I hope you you recover soon. And he left. My mother, <laughs> I, I I got the middle name. She, oh, no. I not believe that I answered that man in that fashion. But in my mind, I'm thinking – Really, dude, I'm I'm here on crutches, one leg. This one's just it's covered in white bandages. I'm I'm white knuckling these crutches, and you're gonna ask me if I can still run. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So that that made my day to day, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I've had uh people for me ask, Oh, why can't you stop? clopping down on the occasion I'm like well i can't control my feet so it feels like a prosthesis for me it really does sometimes i've seen how some guys get up you know with double prosthesis and you have to do it a very specific way because you can't control your feet and motion and your balance mm-hmm. that's similar to how i have to get up you know sean i'm um i'm so thankful that my injury wasn't any worse. Obviously I, I'd be, I would, there would be something mentally wrong with me if I said, you know, I kind of wish that I would have lost this or that or whatever, but yeah, I will say that, um, a, a roughly five to seven days prior to my, my incident, I had asked, somebody asked me being an EOD tech and having been to combat multiple times, uh, had I ever thought about the potential of losing a limb? And if so, if I had to choose, what would I choose? And my response to them was my right leg below the knee because a single lower limb amputation below the knee, uh, you can overcome and do almost anything that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I was very heavy 
into riding motorcycles and your left leg controls, controls the gear shift and your right leg controls the brake. And so in my mind, I knew I could figure out a way to manipulate the, the brake pedal for the rear brake. If I lost my left leg, I, I would have to modify my bike in order to shift the bike. So my thought process on that time in that period of my life was if I'm going to lose a limb, I want to lose my right leg below the knee a week. It was like a week later I had the accident and my leg was ripped from my body. Ouch. I'm still saying that very eerie. Um, Mm -hmm. again, everything happens for a reason. I'm thankful for it. And, um, life is good, man. I know you founded limitless outdoors and then you also started the, three, uh, a three G, uh, initiative. That's correct. So limitless outdoors was, um, was, is, um, that's, it's about me and how I live my life and, and trying to reach out and, and motivate and inspire other people. Um, I also have turned it into a, a platform for, uh, for, uh, publishing blogs, uh, gear reviews. And, um, I have a lot of fun with it. Um, yeah. Through that journey and that process, um, I met one of my now very, very close friends um, and a hunting partner and my podcast partner, nice. Al Quackenbush, a.k.a. Chubbs. And through Al, I was introduced to Chris Ham at HHA Sports and HHA USA. And my connection with Chris is um, it's pretty special not to come across creepy. And, and in my very first lengthy phone conversation with Chris, that was supposed to be our first podcast together, uh, but we had some technical difficulty and it turned into a phone call. Mm-hmm. He unknowingly planted a seed with me um, that, that inspired me to do something bigger than limitless outdoors. And it was through that, that I chose to start a nonprofit. That is the, the A3G initiative. It's the annual amputee archery grant initiative. Um, we advertise this a lot. I, I tend to talk about it quite a bit because um, I love it. But the premise behind it, Sean, is I know how beneficial archery was for me. I love it. I, I've, I've been in archery my whole life. But it was a tool that kept me motivated in the, in the outdoors. Um, it keeps me moving and mobility is medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to steal that from a, from a 10th group friend of mine. Um, I just had dinner with him about two weeks ago. Um, and one of his favorite quotes is mobility is medicine. And so I, I thought, why not try to put those tools in the hands of another amputee that, that may or may not be struggling and or use it as a mechanism for rewarding people for doing great things. Mm-hmm. And it's turning out to be an incredible process that we're, we're wrapping up our second year. Um, the grant has doubled in, in the two years that we've been, um, doing it. And when I say double, meaning that the, the donation package, the actual equipment, um, has increased, um, the, the folks that are donating to the grant are increasing. And then this year we actually have an all inclusive whitetail hunt as part of the grant, which that was my desire in the first year. But <clears throat> you know, when, when you wake up, um, on a Sunday morning in late January and decide that you're going to put a grant together, um, you can write down a whole bunch of goals and mm-hmm. you can have a whole lot of stuff listed on a piece of paper or on a word document of, Hey, this is what I want my grant to be. But that first year that it's a grind, man. It's, it's a struggle. It takes time, takes a tremendous amount of effort and mm-hmm. you have to grow. And I wasn't able to, I, man, I couldn't even get a cooler the first year. And that wow. was a big, that was a big ticket item for me. I, I reached out to probably four or five different cooler companies trying to get somebody on board to, to donate a cooler to the grant. Yeah. So, um, if I couldn't get a cooler for the grant, uh, how am I going to, how am I going to get a hunt donated? Right. I tried. Right. Um, I did. I tried, but it's still the first year. It was a great success. Um, this year I have a cooler. 
um, grizzly <laughs> coolers. And then I have a wonderful all-inclusive whitetail archery hunt in Texas. Uh, thanks to Chris Dunlap, uh, the four day ranch and a couple of other people that really don't like to be highlighted. Um, they're really putting that together, um, f- for our recipient. Um, that's great. So yeah, man, it's, it's exciting. Um, I have no idea what next year is going to bring. I know that the, the grant, we have goals. We, um, I turned it into a legitimate nonprofit for this year, which required a board of directors. So I have a vice president and a treasurer. Mm-hmm. Al Quackenbush is Chubbs. He is my vice president, my wife, Tara. She's a secretary treasurer. Um, next year, we're looking to add two more positions hmm. uh, to the board of directors. And one of my goals is to have um, at least one um, amputee on the board. Cause right now I'm, I'm a, I'm the token, I'm the token amputee on the board. And you, I would you like, don't want that. I'd like to have another one on the board. And as a nonprofit, you have to have an odd number on your board. So next year we will be adding two more folks to the, to the panel. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're looking at, we're looking at potentially, um, adding a little bit to the grant as far as recipients, but we're not, we're not a hundred percent settled on that yet. Um, we're yep. looking at the areas that we want to grow in and, um, and then we're going to prioritize that and make a decision if we try to tackle all those next year, or mm-hmm. if, we, if we tackle one or two, so we continue positive progression and then go after some more, um, in our fourth year. So uh, more to come on that. Yep. So you're thinking about adding another hunt as well, or, like two no, no, we're, we're trying to decide whether or not we want to, um, maintain just one recipient. Okay. Last year I did the, I did the primary grant package and Al Quackenbush, who at that time was not affiliated with the grant. We weren't even podcasting at the time. Yeah. And he had a, he owned three bows at that point in time. And what he considered his tertiary bow, his backup to his backup. Hmm. It was a, a bear. Um, I can never remember the name, um, of this bear. It started, I do know it started with an A and, um, he called me on the phone and said, Hey, I've, I've been, um, I've been wanting to give this bow away. I just, I have not, I haven't figured out how, where, or why I wanted to part with it. And he asked me if he could go through the, the application letters that I, that I had not selected. And so he chose one from there and yeah. we started working with that recipient ended up being a catfish. It was a, it was a fake, it was a fake applicant. Oh. Uh, so that was mildly disappointing. But from that, I reached out to a double amputee um, friend of mine out in Salt Lake, Utah, Sydney Smith. And Sydney provided us with the name of a, at that time, a 15 year old boy who was missing his leg. Um, tragic accident when he was, I believe, um, Ben, I'm sorry. I think you were three years old. Um, he was ran over by a lawnmower, took his leg off. Ouch. And Sean, what a stellar kid. I love talking about Ben, incredible (laughs) family. Um, they don't come from much, but they love and make the best out of everything that they have. Yeah. Positive. Ben is a, well, last year, 15 year old focused killer. That dude loves to hunt. He has, he has the mindset of a successful hunter, which is one of my topics that I love to, to speak on. Right. Um, we, we put together a small package for Ben. And so coming into this year, we haven't even looked at doing any type of an additional or smaller package throughout the year. Last year happened by accident. Um, but in the future, we're, we're looking at, um, do we want to continue only doing one package a year or do we want to do, you know, the major grant giveaway that I, that, that A3G is, is, is being known for. And then mm-hmm. do we have, do we want another couple, couple smaller opportunities? Um, do we solicit 
some of our supporters um, to have some equipment on standby just in case another Ben comes into our life and mm-hmm. we need that connection and we want to provide them with something greater than what they have. Yeah. Uh, do we want to move forward with having an, um, an adult recipient and a youth recipient? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're chewing on some ideas. So not to let the cat out of the bag um, or to open a door that we're not ready to walk through yet. Um, those are, those are a couple of ideas that we're chewing on. Yeah. And that's a, uh great for Ben being able to get that bow and whatever else you guys put in there because yeah, that sounds like something that's, I would do that yearly too as well. I mean, that's just my personal preference on it would be do the major one and then do the youth one. I mean, that way every, you get inspire future generations. That's, that's, that's one of the aspects of, of pursuing youth. Um, There's like, there's some very, um, uh, what's the, I, I just went for a loss of words again. There are, there are a couple of, um, very active outdoor and or archery focused youth programs. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that there's, um, there's a lot of candidates out there that could benefit from an archery grant, um, a story about Ben, uh, this was very emotional for us. We were introduced to Ben by Sydney. Um, we reached out to Ben's mother. Um, his mother was our primary point of contact through the process. And it, that was so much fun for us, putting the parts and pieces together. And once Al and I had our package ready and we, we reached out to Ben's mother and we, we started telling her what we were going to provide Ben. It was like the week prior they had been out shooting and Ben's release broke. Oh. And, and they did not have um, the income at that point to replace, to buy him another release. They did not know what they were going to do f- for a release for their son. So he could keep shooting and hunting. Yeah. And part of our package that we had put together for Ben was a new release. And when we told her that he was getting a new release, it was that emotional exchange with her, um, having all of those parts and pieces of that puzzle coming together was such a powerful event. And I, I just know that, that being able to impact people's lives that way and, and have a positive impact on amputees is something that I want to continue to do as long as I can. Well, I hope that you guys can do it as long as you can, because that's inspirational to say the least. I mean, to be able to help somebody out even just a little bit, it makes them feel better and obviously everybody around it because doing something nice always helps. You know, a smile and a handshake is such an easy thing to do. Yeah. And, and some of the relationships that are developed by a simple smile and a handshake is amazing. Yeah. Now, interesting thing. I actually know Sydney. I've talked to him and had him on my podcast. And you've had Sid on your podcast? Yes, I have. I had Sid. I, I'm i not going back through the list right now, but it was one of the earlier ones. I've been doing the podcast for a year and a half now, and it was a bi-weekly podcast when I had him on. So, Is, is that supposed to be a pun on words? You had Sidney Smith, who's a bilateral, and it was a, it was a bi-weekly podcast. Are you trying to be funny, Sean? It is now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, back then it was literally bi-weekly and I had him on because I saw him and then I saw uh, Disabled Outdoorsman uh, Utah and I didn't connect them together. I saw that they were connected, but I didn't connect them together. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm on that board. I'm the vice president. I'm like, well, that saves me time on contacting everybody. We can just talk there. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. I know small world in, I'm going to say it in the disabled community. It's a very small world. When you, when you, when you narrow it down to either the running community or mm-hmm. the, the hunting community, yeah, it gets small really fast. Yeah. And then you even shrink that down even more with what well, our community in general, 
which I'm trying to look to get back into actually being able to run. I'm uh, looking at uh, some prosthesis um, leg braces for me. Okay. Yeah. They're, and I'm going to try and pull them up on my phone so I can show him just so everybody's knowing what I'm pointing at here. <laughs> but they're very unique, and these are not my legs. These are somebody else's legs, so I'm going to show him. They are essentially, they take the tension from the from the amount of the shock from where my the weight of the feet and everything land down because with club feet, you don't have the calf muscle to take the hit. So all that shock goes straight into your shins and your feet. So with that, being able to take the hit, and I talked to the guy a while back, and I haven't talked to him recently. He says, yeah, a lot of that pain from running, completely gone. So looking into it. Excellent. I, I am looking forward to hearing more about your successes. Yeah. And that, and that, that dream. Yep. To be able to run again, which I haven't properly ran in, well, since before I breached, uh, 175, I'm now 250. So well, it's a, it's been a little bit. I, I hope you can start to run again. Yeah. I started uh, developing the stress fractures on my shins back in high school when I was 175. So it would be interesting not to let those things heal up finally. Yes, I agree. Now, we talked about you and your buddy Chubbs and the podcast a little bit. I want to get into depth on that. And what started the podcast and how long have you guys been running for? So it started out as kind of a joke. We, um, we were at the ATA last January and, uh, Chris Ham, Logan Chartran, Al Quackenbush and Chad Stillman and I, we all ended up in Chris Ham's hotel room after the Badlands film festival. We were joining up to record a podcast and, as we were sitting in the hotel room fighting chubs for whatever snacks happened to be laying around. <laughs> and Logan was, was prepping all of the podcast equipment. Um, Logan is Chris Ham's uh, podcast producer. The, uh, somebody asked, it was Chris. Chris asked Al when he was going to start a podcast. And Al looked at me and he said, well, um, I think that I'll start a podcast when Aaron agrees to, to do one with me and I want to call it Sprocket and Chubbs. And I immediately started laughing hysterically. And my response was, I'm in, say when. That sounds like a great time. Not only are we all 80s kids, um, that just has a really good ring to it, Sprocket and Chubbs. Nice. And if, if you're not familiar with Al Quackenbush, he is Santa Claus. He's got a big white beard. Um, he's built like Santa Claus and he loves to laugh and he's happy and has a contagious smile and, and loves to make fun of himself. And so we, uh, we chatted about it. Um, but we were both pretty adamant that, Hey, you know, um, all jokes aside, yeah, we want to do this. So we, we kicked it off. And it's, um, wow. Sprocket and Chubbs is what? Eight months old now, seven months old. Nice. And we started out, um, our initial plan was we were only going to record and publish one podcast a month. We were looking at the last Wednesday of every month to publish a recording. Mm -hmm. And he lived in California. I lived in Virginia. And we, we just figured with the time distance, you know, or mm -hmm. the, time, the time difference between uh, the three time zones and, you know, his life and my life and everything else that we thought that was a very achievable goal of one recording a month. Mm -hmm. Well, what we found was we both enjoyed it so much that we were publishing uh, once a week. And then we, we hit a period of time that we knew was coming, um, that, uh, Al and his family was going to move to Tennessee. 
So with their moving process, that um, that put a hold on us recording together. Um, I did a couple of, of sessions solo. Um, and now my wife and I are moving, but um, we're we're back on to we're we're back into recording. We're um we'll start recording once a week again, <clears throat> and uh, we um we, we published again last Friday. We have we have another um, podcast coming out Wednesday. I'm having a tremendous amount of fun with it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of DJI. Um, I'm wearing the mic right now. Um, mm. uh, the receivers plugged into my computer. Sean, just just for your knowledge, this little kit right here, it has it carries everything inside. So you have two um, mic kits, transmitters. You have one receiver um, mm-hmm. inside this kit. You have adapters that plug into it's a USC, mm-hmm. uh, and then the iPhone um, Fire adapter. Uh, this is your charger. Uh, so it has a little uh, uh, C port on the back of it, and this will record your entire system three different times, full full charges in here, um, and you can record up to what it's eight or nine hours on one ch- on a single charge. And Dang. you can see, so just so you see the size comparison, here's my iPhone 14, and here is my that's that's my media kit, man. It's tiny. Wow. I take this thing everywhere. It's in my truck. It's in my work bag. It's in my backpack. Um, it's in my carry-on. I've recorded twice traveling through airports and terminals. Dang. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, we call them tailgate talks. My, the, the initial intent was, you know, hunting, hunting public ground. You go and park somewhere, and sometimes you're, in a, you're not just parked on the side of the road by yourself. You might be at a gate, and when you come out from your hunt, there – who knows? Maybe there's one other car. There might be 10 other cars. Yeah. And my thought process is, and I'm looking forward to hunting season this year, is if I if I come out from hunting and there's guys in the parking lot and I start engaging with one or two of them and, and somebody seems to be friendly and interesting, yeah. I'll, hey man, you want to drop the tailgate and sit over there and rip a podcast? You 20 minutes. I need 20 minutes. Do you have 20 nice. minutes before you drive home? And just have that interaction. It's um, ha- we've had some um, some pretty cool folks on our podcast already, and we plan nice. to have more celebrity level folks on our podcast. But our our drive is to connect with the regular guy because yeah. that's really what the hunting industry is about. It's not it's not your YouTube sensations that are going to keep the hunting industry going. It's guys like you and me that yeah. go out and do the grind every day. You know, I mean, it, you walk into any room anywhere across the United States and say, "Hey, have you ever heard of Limitless Outdoors?" Most people are going to say no. If you're in yeah. a, if you're in a two legged environment, people are going to be like, "Who's that? What's that?" Or if you say, "Hey, you know, have you ever heard of Sprocket and Chubbs?" They're going to be like, "No," but man, yeah. have you heard the have you heard the the, the newest um um you know meat eater just published a recording and, and it's like. Yeah. And I love and I love Meat Eater. They put out some great content. They really, really do. But we want to to connect with the everyday dudes. And and so far, I've had the opportunity to do that. And it's cool. Yeah. Well, with the podcast, uh, have you guys ever thought with especially with your moves going on to like record like three or four uh, week weeks worth of podcasts in a week and then set it up that way. That way you guys don't have any interruption. So we, there's been a couple of times where we've sat and recorded two or three sessions. Uh, But again, you know, it was early on and then we, we hit a period of time where, where Chubbs was just not available. Yeah. And so we're, um, we're, we're, we're going to get back on our feet and uh, we, we have some other ideas on, on what we want to do. Chubbs has, has not ventured into um, recording on his own yet. Um, I, I, I've, done it several times and he's going to come out he's going to come out from underneath that rock and start recording on his own he's making some contacts in in tennessee and so if i'm not available he's just gonna he's gonna go out and and knock him out and and um so we'll be able to get some more content but um yeah it was just that that period when they were trying to get from california to tennessee that um that that put a hold on on our recording and it's it's coming more content is on the way Nice. 
Now, I'm thinking about something with California to Tennessee. Did they pass the law in California where they could actually tax you up to 10 years? I have no idea. Oh, good Lord. I've been hearing that's actually been passed, but that's just scary. There's, there's only two things that I really know about California, Sean. One is they have great Mexican food. Two is I know I don't want to live there. That's really the only two things that I know about California. <laughs> yeah, they actually lost a congressional seat last year. So, well, let's not talk about let's not talk about California. There's you're right. Far, so, better, far better things that we can talk about. Right, like uh, the ATA that's hosted in Indiana every year, isn't it? It's no, no. It okay. um, it shifts. Um, I think right now there it's shifting between three different cities. Yeah. Uh, this year is, or this coming January, it'll be in St. Louis. Okay, so the ATA was in last year. Was uh, this past twenty twenty three year? It was in Indianapolis, I believe. That's correct. I missed that. So that's a shame. Yeah, I did make the Indiana Deer, Turkey, and Waterfowl uh, Expo, which was about two or three weeks after that. That was fun. That was my first expo. Okay. Yeah, I met Dustin Huff there and talked to him. He's the uh, world record, not world record, United States record whitetail holder. Very cool. Based out of southern Indiana. That's cool. Expos are fun. Yes, they are. I spent six hours there on my feet, and my feet and knees were paying for it later. It's, it's, It's worth the pain. I... Mm-hmm. I love expos. I, I'm fortunate enough to have a very deep relationship with Latitude Outdoors, the tree saddle company. And I've, I've had the opportunity to attend the ATA with them um, mm-hmm. and the, the Great American Outdoor Show and represent their, their company and their products and their exhibit. I love, I love talking to people. If you meet me on a day-to-day basis in general life, Sean, um, I'm, I, um, I like my alone time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I travel through the airports, I often have my Bose headphones on just to let people know that, Hey, you know, I, I, I don't want to talk to you. Um, but I'm also a very social person. So I call myself a vi- an introverted extrovert. And when I go to shows, especially if I'm there with latitude outdoors, man, that energy I'm hoarse. When I leave, the ATA. Um, I was at, the, I was at, at, in Pennsylvania. Um, at the end of the first day, I was hoarse from, yeah. from talking to people and trying to, you know, speak over the drone of the energy in the room and the announcements or music and everything. Um, at, at Pennsylvania, I was hoarse after the first day. Wow. And there's a big difference between the ATA and a, and a regular expo. Um, the ATA, um, you pay a lot of money to get into the ATA and they have, they have criteria on who can attend that. Um, that's not just your, your general hunter that's coming off the street and coming into the show. The great American outdoor show is boasted the largest outdoor show in America. Yeah. And that would probably make it the world because they don't really have hunting shows over in Europe. Um, at least not at the level that we do. So the, the Pennsylvania show is probably the largest in the world. And the volume of people that funnel through that event center every single day is nuts. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're surrounded by people nonstop. When, when the doors open, people are standing in line. Uh, there might be 50 to 100 people standing in line at, that have electronic tickets that are just scanning as they go. And mm-hmm. there's an equal amount of people that are standing um, to purchase tickets on site. Uh, within 10 to 15 minutes of the doors opening, that place is jam-packed. Yeah. Your shoulder, um, it, y- you can't get from one end of the building to the other in 15 minutes. It's pretty much impossible. There's so many people you have to navigate through. And when you're there representing a product, it's nonstop. Mm-hmm. Now, how is it do getting into a tree saddle for you? Uh, it's super simple. Oh. But I say that, you know, people, people watch me drive my car, Sean. 
Yeah. And I've had amputees ask me, how do you do that? Because I don't, I have not altered my vehicle. I just drive my car. I have an idea of how you do it. Um, yeah. You want to hear my uh, theory on it? Sure. You use your thigh. I My hip. Yeah. yeah. I drive through my hip. Yep. That's I, um, how I do it. Sean, for me, and again, this was that mental decision that I that I that I made when I was still laying in the grass. Mm-hmm. I was going to, if I was going to live through that event, I was going to live my life um, as if I had two legs. Mm-hmm. So when I make a decision to do something, I I do it as if my prosthetic is my real leg. When I made the decision to get into saddle hunting. I started out with a one stick and I did not own anything more than a single stick until last year. I just, I watched YouTube and I, I looked, I, I looked at all the different products. I watched a whole bunch of different people on YouTube and how they climbed, what they used, what their rigs were like. And then I took that military mentality and I was a fireman for a while. I took that, that fireman mentality because we, we train in a similar fashion. You take a new skill and you whiteboard it or do mm-hmm. like a classroom session and then you break it down into steps and you master each step and then you put it all together and you execute it. And that's what I did with saddle hunting. And I made the decision that if I was going to get away from my lone wolf tree climber, which I absolutely loved and had mastered, um, that I wanted to make myself more mobile and be much lighter than I had been. And so I made the decision that it was going to be a, a one stick. So I bought a, I bought a two-step aider and I, I bought a, a, a modified API single stick and um, connected with latitude. And I got into the original latitude saddle. And that's, that's all I ever knew from day one was one stick. And it really kind of caught me off guard when I started associating with other saddle hunters. And I went to my first event around a whole bunch of saddle hunters and they're looking at me cross-eyed like, how do you one stick? It's like, I've had people tell me with that have two legs that they have no idea how I one stick because they can't one stick with two legs. And my brain doesn't work that way. It's, yeah. if I want to do it. I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. Two legs or not. Yeah, right. Well, at least you're uh, able to get up on saddles. I'm still kind of wary with me because ladders and me don't mix very well. So, You know, Sean, um, it's probably easy for me to say this through the camera and through a mic to you saying um, right. we can make it happen. Oh, if I believe it. I, if I was able to, to connect with you in the same space with a saddle rig and a tree or a climbing pole, Man, I could put you in. A, I know for a fact I can put you in a saddle. Now I might not recommend a one stick setup, but yeah. if we took multiple sticks, I know for a fact that we could get you in a saddle and build your confidence, and you would be you you'd be killing deer from the trees. Yeah, because right now I'm using an elevated blind. You know, maybe six inches off the ground, elevated. It's nice enough that you and I can sit in there and shoot bows, but I'm usually, I'm right now, I'm just shooting a crossbow. So I need to get a bow. <laughs> you do, sir. Yeah, right. One of the things that I need to get and acquire. See, my father in law, he got me into hunting when I was 29 or no, 30, actually. My son had just turned one the year prior, uh, the uh, six months prior. So I got in there to, you know, get with him and bond with him. So he had a crossbow. I didn't know you needed a bow or anything And Indiana. Just passed the, uh, anybody can use crossbows. So that's all I've ever known, but now I'm piqued interest in utilizing bow. You know, Sean, I own a crossbow. Uh, yeah. I have a mission sub one. I bought it in 2000. It was, I believe it was November or December of 2017. Yeah. I grew up in Washington state, um, in a state that crossbows were outlawed period. Nobody could use a a crossbow. And I, I used to kind of make fun of Southern boys and all their crossbows because I thought they were silly. I, I 
I started out traditional um, and I've been back and forth between traditional and, and compound bows my whole life. And when I moved to Maryland for my last tour, yeah, I was, a, I found out that I could legally, legally shoot a crossbow in the state of Maryland. And so in my mind, I thought, oh, I want to kill the deer with a crossbow. Why wouldn't I, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, I, I don't necessarily have the drive to, uh, to use a spear. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've harvested animals with modern firearm. Um, I, I had harvested animals with a shotgun at that point. Um, I, I, I got into muzzle loader and I, I knew that I, I was like, why not, why not kill the deer with a crossbow? So I bought my own crossbow. Um, I don't use it anymore. Um, I keep it for other people that are new to hunting because it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, that's, that's a, that's a very, um, entry level gateway for hunters to get into, to archery and oh, period. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a guy that frowns on folks that shoot a crossbow. And I, and I, and I, and I will explain it like this, unless you are a staunch traditional archer, you have no room to, to, to look down on somebody that uses a crossbow The the, the compound equipment that we have to put in our hands in today's day, um, today's society, you know, our technology, yeah. whether you're shooting a, a vertical bow or a crossbow, um, outside of a Raven, um, you know, you can, a lot of guys will practice and they're shooting accurately at 120, 150 yards. And yeah. there's, there's guys that are taking coos deer at a hundred, 110 yards. I promise you with my mission, uh, sub one, even though it is when it was, when it was introduced and in, I think 2017 was the year it hit the market. They, that was the most accurate crossbow on the market. Um, and it was, that was named sub one because it was shooting a sub one inch group at a hundred yards. Yeah. I would never shoot in an animal with my crossbow more than 50 or 60 yards. Yeah. My last deer that I shot out of a saddle with my, with my inline was 40 yards. So again, I circle back to where I was starting on the crossbow topic was if you're shooting a compound bow, you really, you really can't look down on somebody shooting a compound bow because with the, with the right um, practice, and, and if you focus on the fundamentals, you can shoot your compound bow equally as far as a crossbow. So how yeah. is it, how, how, how can you scoff at a crossbow? I just, it baffles me. Yeah. Well, I've also seen a couple of buddies of mine that I've talked to on the podcast, um, Derek Demon and Lucas Harrow. These are guys that are in wheelchairs and they're shooting bows. In fact, Lucas Harrow was a, for former uh, first responder and paramedic, and he di- broke his neck in the Mississippi diving in there. He was from yeah. Minnesota, and yeah, now he's shooting competition archery, draw weight for hunting with a bow. I'm like, yep, yeah, it's time. Yeah, now I encourage you to do it. Um, shooting a compound bows, man, I, I just absolutely love it. You know, and, and going back to the A3G and using archery as, as a mechanism of recovery, you know, at a, at a certain skill level, you can literally shoot inside your house. You can yeah. shoot in your backyard. You can shoot in your garage. Yeah. You, and you, as long as you don't damage or lose your arrows, you have a, a reusable resource. Yeah. Whereas for firearms, I know there's a lot of guys that they say, you know, um, shooting firearms, pistols or, or, or long bores, that's, that's my therapy. That's awesome. But you have to have access to a range and yeah. you have to purchase ammunition. That's not a reusable resource. Um, and I mean, even, even if you're reloading, you know, once you build a dozen arrows, again, it, it, unless you damage or lose those arrows, you will always have a dozen arrows. You can reload 30 rounds. You go to the range and you fire those 30 rounds. Well, now you have to go back to the bench and, and rebuild, you know, reload all of your, your ammunition. So archery is just such a great tool that you could do it almost anywhere. Right. And, um, 
you, you know, can can you shoot your crossbow in a house as well? Sure, yeah, you can, but it, it's a different it's different fundamentals. And that's yep. where that's where a lot of people get hung up on the whole crossbow thing. Well, the may they may as well be in gun season and this and that. And I'm like, you know what? Rather than downplay crossbows or look down on crossbows or talk bad about crossbows, why don't we look at the fact that if we can get more people into the outdoor industry, if we can get more people buying their hunting licenses and their hunting yeah. annually, men, women, and children, regardless of their health, if they want to get into the sport and the industry by crossbow, by all means, go buy a crossbow, practice with it, buy your hunting license, buy your deer tags, and go hunt, please, because right. you are you you are preserving what we love. Nice. All right. Well, I'm done do you, on that pro box. Right. Well, do you want to plug any social media? Uh, well, sure. Absolutely. Um, I am Limitless Outdoors. That's spelled L-I-M-B hyphen I-T-L-E-S-S. I'm on, I have a website, limitlessoutdoors.com. I have, my email is limitless.outdoors at gmail.com. I have a Facebook page. I have an Instagram page. I have a YouTube channel. My YouTube is very rudimentary, uh, rudimentary, but I have a lot of fun with it. And if you do a search for me on YouTube, um, even if you start spelling L-I-M-B, it likes to autocorrect. So you've got to spell the whole thing out or YouTube's going to send you to a, a two-legged limitless outdoors. And it's not spelled L-I-M-B. Right. Um, and then, of course, there is um, Sprocket and Chubbs. It's our podcast. We're on all of your major podcast platforms. And Sprocket and Chubbs also has a YouTube channel. So you can actually watch our videos <clears throat> on YouTube and we do some stuff on location. So I've, I filmed in the George Washington. I film in the airport. I uh, shouldn't say film record. So we we're enjoying that, that YouTube piece as well. So that's where I'm at. A3G, A3G has an Instagram page. A3G has a Facebook page and you can go to a3ginitiative.org. It will take you to my limitless outdoors page. There's an entire page under Limitless Outdoors for the A3G. So that's all about me, everything that I'm doing in the outdoors outside of filling tags. Nice. Well, thank you for coming on, Aaron, and talking about AG3 and uh, Limitless Outdoors and your past and everything else. And I'd love to have you on again and probably be on your podcast eventually. But So thank you again for coming on. And remember, everybody, stay adaptive. Stay adaptive.